Okay, Neil, how about your 48-year-old man? He felt a lump over his liver, saw his primary care doc, and series of scans. He eventually was found to have large liver masses, and these were biopsied. And the biopsy was challenging in that the initial read was a pathology which was new to me, diffuse intermediate B-cell lymphoma, intermediate between Burkitt's and diffuse large B-cell. Difficult because we didn't, or I didn't at least know how to treat that initially. We didn't have enough tissue to do all the fish and cytogenetic studies. So one of the initial challenges with this guy, who was a pretty intense guy, was to have to convince him that he needed a rebiopsy. So he did go through another biopsy and was diagnosed with an aggressive diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Before we go on, John, can you talk a little bit about sort of the diagnosis of Burkitt's versus diffuse large B-cell and sort of looking at this case, how it played out that way? Sure. Well, I think that with the more recent WHO classification for lymphoma, this entity of this intermediate between Burkitt's type and diffuse large cell type has come out. And I think that in part, the diagnosis is morphologic, as it is with all lymphomas. In part, it's immunophenotypic. And in part, it's through the cytogenetics, namely looking for CMYK translocations and trying to better categorize a Burkitt's lymphoma versus this kind of intermediate type. I think in talking with this patient, one of the things that we touched on was the issue that people face all the time with lymphoma patients where, you know, they may have a diagnostic procedure and it comes back B-cell lymphoma and often it's maybe the patient's sick or you just want to get them started on treatment and it's easy to just give them R-CHOP because that covers most things. But the reality is, and I think this is a good example of such a case, you know, often you have to go back and get more tissue and really clarify things and I think it can make a difference, obviously, for the patient that you can be confident that you've got them on the right treatment and it was interesting to talk with this patient looking back because I'm sure when Neil was dealing with him, it was stressful making him go back to get another biopsy and the time involved and the patient wants to get going. But in retrospect, I think the patient was very grateful and I think it was excellent care that he actually went through and got that. So I think it's good reassurance for people that in the heat of the moment, it can be painful to try to clarify these diagnoses. But at the end of the day, it's very helpful. And I think from the practical standpoint, with this patient ultimately being classified as a diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, giving him R-CHOP, you know, one can look back at that having a more firm diagnosis, being more comfortable with that, as opposed to if he clearly had a Burkitt's lymphoma, giving him a more intensive regimen, whether it's a Codox-M type regimen or a Hyper-CVAD type regimen, would certainly be appropriate. And the real question is, what do you do with this intermediate type, given the fact that historically it's a relatively newly established established entity and you don't clearly have a track record with one particular regimen versus another in this intermediate category. And I think at the end of the day here, the extra effort to make the diagnosis kind of took care of that problem to a degree. So what happened with the patient? So he got started on RCHOP Q14 and did very, very, very well. Really after the first cycle, his palpable liver lesions disappeared. He had no substantial side effects. He just finished his six cycles. An interim pet, he was negative and in remission. The second challenge on him was, and this is a guy, this is a big burly guy, but he was challenging and by his own admission, quite a chicken. We decided to give him intrathecal chemotherapy with methotrexate. He had two treatments, which went just fine. And on his third intrathecal methotrexate, he developed an arachnoiditis, which really laid the guy up who was working, you know, hard six days a week, pretty much laid him up for about 10 to 14 days. 
right now he's done. The question becomes, do we need to give him his fourth interstitial therapy or is there any other way around that? And what is the definitive or defined number of IT therapies? So, John, can you first comment on the issue of RCHOP14? Sure. We talked about this a little bit when we reviewed the patient. As I think most people know, the German group in particular has historically looked at CHOP14 versus CHOP21, particularly in older patients with large cell lymphoma, suggested a benefit to the 14-day schedule in those older patients. And therefore, when rituximab came along, the Germans stuck with the 14-day schedule, i.e. RCHOP14. On the other hand, you know, many others, including I think most in the U.S. and the French group, went from CHOP21 to RCHOP21. And so we're left now with the question, is rituximab the great equalizer? Does the 14-day versus 21-day schedule make a difference whether you're giving rituximab? So obviously that's a key question that as of today we don't have a definitive answer to. There have been two studies that have been preliminarily reported looking at this issue. One is a study presented at ASCO in 2009, which was a British study, took about 1,000 patients, all ages, all risk groups, and randomly assigned them to RCHOP14 versus RCHOP21. And basically, the efficacy was fairly similar. The safety was fairly similar. Some of this relates to growth factor use. In this group of patients, there was uniform growth factor use, i.e. pegfilgrastim, on the 14-day schedule and less routine use in the 21-day schedule. And the bottom line of this study, which was reported with, I believe, about 18 months median follow-up in that ballpark, was that there wasn't a huge difference between the two, and about three-quarters of patients were in remission doing well. Obviously, more follow-up is needed, and hopefully within this year we'll see that. The other study that has preliminarily looked at this also focused on older patients. This was a GILA study that was presented at ASH 2009, and that was an interim analysis of, I believe, about 100 patients in each arm, although it's a bigger study, that randomly assigned older patients over the age of 60 to the 14-day versus the 21-day schedule. And the story in that study was basically that efficacy was similar, in fact, perhaps a little bit better with the 21-day schedule. However, no real differences statistically there at this point. Interestingly, in this study, they did not uniformly use growth factors in the 14-day schedule, and therefore the dose intensity of the 14-day schedule was less than what one might expect. So it really wasn't, as some might say, dose-dense therapy in its truest test. So, you know, I think that's an imperfect study at this point as well. So at the end of the day, I personally use the 21-day schedule. I haven't changed, but I certainly know that there are many people around that looked at the German data and other data with a 14-day schedule and changed to it. And I think that's certainly reasonable. And for sicker patients who you might want a more rapid response or patients you just want to get things done a little bit quicker, it's certainly not unreasonable to have chosen that in this patient. But I think at this point, you know, if you're using the 21-day schedule, I think it's probably for most patients the standard thing to do. And we eagerly await the results of those ongoing studies. Neil, what's been your experience in terms of tolerability of RCHOP14? You said this man kind of cruised through it. In the appropriate patient, younger patient, the vast majority get through it fine. Maybe a little more fatigue. They don't get that extra week to recover and recuperate. I look at it pretty simplistically. They get done quicker. This guy's, you know, he's basically running his own business. He's got to get back to work. And just the pathology of his disease, I felt this might be a disease that you may want to look at and hit a little harder with the aggressive nature. 
I have no problem in people who I give 14, if they don't tolerate it, they're getting tired, they're getting run down, they have cytopenias, just stretch them out to every three weeks. I'm not sure when I counsel people, I don't tell them that this is any great benefit that I think they're going to have a higher rate of any endpoint, but they finish faster and they feel better when they're done. One other question, John, what about clinical trials for a patient like this? Are there trials out there right now that a patient like this could potentially go into or could have gone into in the beginning? So I think there certainly are clinical trials. Obviously, the issue of his diagnosis and clarifying that obviously would play a role in that. But a couple of the major clinical trials that are going on in the U.S. in large cell lymphoma include there's an intergroup trial led by CLGB of the dose-adjusted R-EPOC regimen that has been developed at the NCI, studied as a phase two trial in CLGB with nice results. And now there's a randomized trial of dose-adjusted R-EPOC versus standard R-CHOP on the 21-day schedule. That's a study that also includes molecular profiling, so all patients on that study get a biopsy to look at activated B-cell versus germinal center subtypes of large cell lymphoma, and we'll correlate that with outcome. So that's, I think, an important clinical trial. Obviously, our EPOC regimen is a little more complicated with the infusional and often in hospitalization involved. On the flip side, you know, if it's better, it may be worth it. If it's not better, obviously. So I think it's a very legitimate study that we're participating in. Another study that I think is of interest also relating to the molecular profiling is a study that's going on. It's looking at RCHOP versus RCHOP plus bortezomib velcade. The idea being, and this is a regimen that we looked at at Cornell, the idea being that the activated B-cell or non-germinal center subtype seems to have activation of NF-kappa B, which is associated with a less favorable prognosis, and the concept being that bortezomib may overcome that, and the preliminary phase two data suggests that, but certainly don't prove it at this point. And so that's a randomized trial where patients immediately get classified centrally as to being in the activated B-cell subtype, and then randomly assigned to RCHOP versus the RCHOP plus bortezomib, suggesting that the bortezomib may improve outcomes in that subset, which is, I think, an interesting hypothesis that obviously needs to be tested. I think, you know, there are other few studies out there in large cell lymphoma, you know, whether it's novel antibodies, whether it's consolidation with radioimmunotherapy, there have been some of those studies. There have been maintenance therapies in large cell lymphoma. Personally, I believe that because 50% of patients with large cell lymphoma who progress, progress within the first six months, I think you're going to have to do something different right away. So I'm more enthusiastic about adding a new drug right away or doing the 14-day schedule or doing the infusional regimen than I am about a consolidation or maintenance because many of the patients will progress. I should also mention that there is a intergroup study that hopefully we'll hear about before too long, which looked at higher-risk large cell lymphoma patients, gave them all R-CHOP, and then randomly assigned them to completing R-CHOP versus autotransplant and first remission. And that's something that you know, one might argue in this patient, some people would say, gee, if he has high-risk features, he's a young patient, should he get an auto-transplant and first remission, which I don't think is standard, but some would argue for. And I think this study that's ongoing, that's completed its accrual, but hasn't been analyzed yet, would shed light on that. Because I think certainly some centers would argue that somebody like this, that might be a consideration. What do we know about lenalidomide and diffuse large B-cell? And are there any studies looking at incorporating that up front, John? 
Yeah, I think lenalidomide is one of the drugs that's interesting in large cell lymphoma. As a single agent, it has activity in large cell lymphoma running in the 25% range and relapsed large cell. It also has activity in follicular lymphoma. It also has activity in mantle cell lymphoma. So it's certainly an agent that seems to be applicable to many lymphoma subtypes. And there are studies that I think are looking at it at maintenance after rituximab chemotherapy regimens in various settings. And there was a pilot study that the Mayo Clinic group did where they gave RCHOP with lenalidomide concurrently in a phase one fashion and suggested that it could be safely given, which to me is not quite surprising, but given that it's myelosuppressive, you might think that it might not be easy to give concurrently with RCHOP, but at least the initial data that have been presented in abstract form, I believe at ASH this past year, suggested that you can do it. So I think that's certainly another promising agent that, you know, like most things, it has some single agent activity. I think the bang will hopefully be in combination with other regimens. So let's talk a little bit about the intrathecal therapy here, Neil. You said he had an arachnoiditis. What exactly happened? So the guy did well his first day after his treatment, woke up the next day with a headache, was not a lumbar puncture headache, and this headache worsened over the next four to five days to the point where, you know, the guy had to lay down. If he got up, he got severe headaches, occasional nausea. It went away over the course of, I'd say, almost 14 days. It took him to go away completely. But in his mind, you know, this is really kind of a guy who was tolerating therapy extraordinarily well. This was his main side effect. And he's quite fearful for his next intrathecal therapy if necessary. He got by just with some narcotics, IV fluids, and rest. Did you send him to a neurologist? Are you pretty confident? Had you seen this before? Yeah, absolutely. John, what are your thoughts about what happened here? And what do you think the next step should be? Well, I think certainly people getting LPs and intrathecal chemotherapy, as I'm sure many people are familiar with, the concept of a headache afterwards is par for the course to a degree, but this sounds more significant, certainly not unheard of, and is recognized as a complication that patients can have more significant and, in fact, sometimes debilitating headaches from this. Sometimes these can relate to an arachnoiditis The drug that's been most associated with that, in my experience, has been the liposomal, the depocyte compound, the ARIC, liposomal ARIC, the depot ARIC that, in fact, you have to give a course of dexamethasone to prevent this, but certainly a substantial proportion of people have that. I think, in my experience, it's less common with methotrexate, but can happen. You know, the other things that people can get is a CSF leak, where people have some CSF leak in the lumbar area. They ooze some CSF into the tissues around where the LP was, and therefore they get kind of low pressure. And, you know, the treatments for that often are just hydration, because what happens is almost the veins around the brain sag, so hydration can help that. And then the other thing that is often done is a blood patch, where you actually inject a little bit of blood in that area to patch that. In our center, it's the anesthesiologists that do that. But that's something that in some cases can be involved. I think in this patient, as we talked about, you know, what's the role of intrathecal methotrexate in general? I think in this patient, it was certainly reasonable to give. I was sharing my thoughts that similar to this patient, when I give it intrathecally, I usually don't get much beyond three or four treatments. Usually this is something that happens. So to some degree, it's good that it happened in the third one rather than the first one. The patients that are at increased risk of CNS relapse include Patients that have multiple IPI risk factors, so high LDH, lots of extranodal disease, 
Certainly testicular involvement is classically, some people have said Waldeyer's ring is associated with CNS involvement. So multiple extranodal sites of disease, how you can prophylax, you know, some have argued giving some systemic methotrexate rather than intrathecal. I think that's done less commonly, but certainly in people that were at very high risk, and I have a couple patients that I'm doing that now because they have multiple, multiple risk factors. But I think giving this patient intrathecal is certainly reasonable. How much it helps, it's hard to know. It's not been very well studied. I think the suggestion is that it probably does help a bit. But in somebody like this, I wouldn't feel compulsive about giving him another, you know, completing a course of four. I don't think that fourth treatment's going to make that much difference and has the chance of giving him a lot of morbidity as far as symptoms. So, you know, one could push through and give it or one could just say, you know, three is probably good enough and call it a day. Neil, anything else you want to say about this patient? Mostly. The guy was a character. Guy went out and bought a Corvette during his (laughs) treatment. Brand new Corvette. What's his family situation? He's married. He has one kid. He watches his grandkids quite frequently. Actually, that's where he was going as soon as he left us. As I said, he owns his own business. It's him and his wife and one other person. So, you know, this treatment severely impacted the guy's ability to work and maintain his livelihood. He's just thankful that, you know, he has a potentially curable disease. And, you know, when you hear, you know, you have something in your liver, all the worst thoughts come to your mind. So just out of curiosity, the Corvette, was this sort of a life dream that he wanted to move forward on? Sort of. He figured that if he was going to live, he was going to enjoy his life. Interesting. Anything else about him, John, you want to comment on? I think it was interesting. Obviously, I met him at the end of the game, so to speak, and he's doing great. And it's a nice, not reminder, but I think... You know, you contrast the average aggressive lymphoma patient, they come in and it's a fire drill, you're doing all these tests. Yeah, I can envision the conversations Neil had with him about, yeah, you got to go get another biopsy. He's an intense, very nice guy, but intense. And I'm sure, you know, at the time to hear that, and he readily, we talked about this issue. I mean, he readily admitted it, but you know, it's funny, the contrast in large cell lymphoma where you start off as a fire drill and then you get the routine of how the treatment goes and then by the end, you know, things are good. And unfortunately, it's not good for everybody, but the majority we do pretty well with and hopefully he'll continue to do well. Now, what's happened with this guy imaging-wise? Did he have a PET scan? Yeah, PET. So his initial PET lit up very impressively in the liver. He also had some areas in the T-spine that were asymptomatic. After his fourth cycle, he was PET negative. John, any final comments in terms of intermediate pets and how to react to them? Yeah, it's a controversial area, as you know. I think, you know, just this month in JCO, the memorial experience of interim PET scans was published by Craig Moskowitz and colleagues where they did interim PET scanning in an RCHOP 14 regimen. So to some degree, it would be applicable to this patient suggesting that basically there are a lot of false positives in interim PET scanning. You know, we know population-wise that people who get negative PET scans in the middle of therapy seem to do better, but how much better, what to do about it, I think remains an open question. And the paper that came out in JCO suggests that if your threshold of positivity is low, meaning a low but measurable SUV is still positive, and you biopsy those most of the time, it's not active lymphoma. So I think the jury is still out. I think the message for people, like many things in oncology, is rather than just acting on the PET scan is to do a biopsy if you're going to change your therapy. Most of the time, I think as long as the PET's moving in the right direction, keep up your plan and scan the patient at the end of treatment and act on that one, which, you know, if there's something there, usually the answer is either to biopsy it or to follow it. 